The Guardian. Hello, this is The Business. I'm Adit Chakraborty. On this week's podcast, the government's chief axe man, David Laws, is forced out after an expenses scandal. Where does his departure leave David Cameron's cuts agenda? I have therefore spoken to the Prime Minister and to the Deputy Prime Minister to inform them of my decision to stand down from my role as Chief Secretary with immediate effect. The crisis in the Eurozone deepens, only this time markets are worrying not about austerity, but growth. The Eurozone has become an enormous area of German domination. Europe has never been dominated by Germany economically in the way in which it is dominated at present. Plus, is there any way of plugging BP's plunging share price? Should it be paying a dividend in these circumstances? If it's not going to pay a dividend, then you know the management will be out on their out on their ear pretty quickly, and you would have thought it would be you know it's conceivable to pay the portrait when it would be taken over by somebody somebody else. This is the business from the Guardian. And in the studio today, we have Niels Prattley, who writes the Guardian's Viewpoint column. And we're joined by Kostas Lapvitsis, economist at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. Well, that didn't take long. Less than three weeks and a new government has lost its first minister. David Laws, Treasury's chief secretary, has resigned after revelations about his parliamentary expenses. Let's listen to what's been happening. We'll hear from the Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg in just a moment. But first, here's David Laws. The last two days have been the longest and certainly the toughest of my life. And I'm very grateful indeed for the strong support which I've received from friends, from family, from colleagues and from constituents. I'm also extremely grateful to David Cameron, to Nick Clegg and to George Osborne for the very strong support which they have given me at this very difficult time. The support of others is, of course, incredibly important. But ultimately, I alone have the main responsibility for deciding how to react to recent events. I have therefore spoken to the Prime Minister and to the Deputy Prime Minister to inform them of my decision to stand down from my role as Chief Secretary with immediate effect. It was his decision and his decision alone. I've known David as a a close colleague and a friend for many, many years. I've always admired his intelligence, his sense of public duty and his great personal integrity and my admiration for him has only grown as I've seen the way he's had to deal with the huge pressures on him. There are of course as he himself has acknowledged uh, questions to be answered about his own expenses and that's why he's right to have referred himself to the uh, Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards. Uh, I very much hope that when those questions are answered there will be an opportunity for him to rejoin the government because as everybody has seen in recent weeks he has so much to contribute to national life. Nick Clegg there. Laws has been swiftly replaced by another Liberal Democrat, Scottish Secretary Danny Alexander. We're joined on the line now from our Westminster office by The Guardian's chief political correspondent, Nick Watt. Nick, hi. Hi there. In policy terms, how big a blow is this? I think it's a huge blow. Um, David Laws had made an extraordinary uh, mark uh, in just the three weeks that uh, he was Chief Secretary to the Treasury. 
Um, strategically for the Conservatives, uh, they saw enormous benefit in having a Liberal Democrat in charge of the cuts, because obviously they feared that if they'd been a majority government, they would, in the words of Mervyn King, have been the most unpopular government and would have been out for a generation if they presided over these fearsome cuts we're going to get next year on their own. So there was the benefit of having uh, the Liberal Democrats uh, in charge of those cuts, hands dipped in the blood and all that. But there was also another benefit. Uh, David Laws, ferociously clever, double first from Cambridge, distinguished banker in the city, was also technically very, very effective. Uh, George Osborne, saying how sad it was he'd resigned, said clearly David Laws had been put on earth to do this job. So they couldn't believe their luck in getting, in a sense, the Liberal Democrats to do the dirty stuff. And they also couldn't believe their luck in having someone who was so technically well qualified to do it. So in that sense, it is a huge blow to this coalition government. Um, and what do we know about the new guy, Dan Alexander? Well, there's been a lot of snotty remarks about Danny Alexander, people saying uh, he's not an economist, hasn't worked in the city like David Laws, and people have been pointing out that uh, he was a press officer for the Cairngorms National Park. How on earth can he be uh, Chief Secretary of the Treasury? Well, I'm going to speak up for Danny Alexander. He read politics, philosophy and economics at Oxford, so that therefore means he knows more about economics than George Osborne, who read history at Oxford. Also, what I would say is the reason why Danny Alexander was press officer for the Cairngorms National Park was he was doing that classic thing that young people do. He was nursing a constituency. He, he was nursing that constituency in the Highlands and the Highlands of Scotland that he now represents. Uh, so I think the criticism of him has been a little bit unfair. Before that, he was press officer for the Liberal Democrats, and also he was press officer uh, for Britain in Europe, the organisation that was set up in 1999 that would have been uh, the Yes campaign had there been a referendum on the euro. That put him into contact with lots of senior people on the pro-Europe side like Peter Mandelson and Ken Clark. So Danny Alexander has moved in those circles. He did read economics at Oxford. So I don't think he's going to be quite so naive uh, as people are saying he is. Well, we could argue about the relative merits of history at Oxford versus bluffing your way for a PPE degree. But, could, but one of the things that people liked about David Laws was that when he talked about spending cuts, he had a real glint in his eye and he, he really believed that these spending cuts needed to be made. Do people feel the same way about Dan Alexander? Well, no. And I mean, Polly Toynbee's had a pop at David Laws in The Guardian today saying, as you're saying, that he rather relished the idea of doing these cuts. I mean, but certainly we are told, I mean, let us not forget that the Liberal Democrats campaigned in the general election campaign against the so-called in-year cuts, against those cuts, those six billion cuts being introduced uh, this year. They were on the same side as Labour on that one. And now, hey, they're arguing in favour of it. David Laws was clearly in favour of those uh, early cuts, which is not party policy. And it seems in recent weeks, Danny Alexander came round to that. Interesting, because, of course, he was uh, the main brains behind uh, their election manifesto. But, I mean, they look what was happening uh, in Greece, look what was happening with the sovereign debt crisis in the Eurozone, and uh, said, uh, we need to move. And uh, clearly, Danny, Danny Alexander was behind that uh, so he accepts the need uh, for these in-year cuts which have now been agreed and accepts the need for some pretty drastic action to be taken uh, from the next spending round when we get that uh, from April uh, 2011 announced in rough terms in the budget and then in specific departmental terms from the spending uh, review in the autumn he is behind the need uh, to get going on uh, bringing down the structural deficit. Nick Watt speaking up for PPS everywhere thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Niels let's come to you first I mean as Nick said there, uh, there was a, a worry expressed even in the papers or in the government, I'm not sure which, about how markets would take the sudden shift of personnel. How have they taken it? 
I, I think reasonably sanguinely. I mean, I think, I mean, Nick is absolutely right that the, the timing of this is, is awful, you know, three weeks into a new government and three weeks before an emergency budget. Um, but I think markets have got bigger things to worry about at the moment than the, than the, the who is the chief secretary of Treasury. Um, I mean, to, um, you know, characterise the reaction, somebody sent me an email this morning sort of detailing a uh, the long list of undistinguished chief secretaries to the Treasury under new Labour, a list um, led by Stephen Byers, who did a brief stint in I think 1998 so I I think it's I think it's it's a problem but it's manageable and the markets will wear it what they're really interested in is the content of that budget. Costas when you hear political pundits and uh, uh, politicians talking about someone who's been tremendously able just because they've had a career in banking and been able to do an economics degree what would you make of that as an economist? Well I've taught some of the people who um have ended up in the city or elsewhere and have had distinguished careers. And some of them were very clever, it's true. Others were far from distinguished when they were doing their degrees. Um, so I would not necessarily um, be very impressed by qualifications of this type. It's um, what people say and what they want to do that matters, not um, the trajectory through Oxford, Cambridge or other universities. And as someone who's taught uh, future bankers, do you think you need a career in banking or would a career in public relations be just as good to go around making huge spending cuts uh, <laughs> it's a good question this uh, i think a, a career in developing your political career would be <laughs> or some some tra- a track record and some thinking about how to develop your political career would be the appropriate uh, background here not training in banking or training in other disciplines it's uh, a steeliness of the mind that's necessary and a steeliness of will Okay, well, well, we'll leave that there. And if you want to follow more on this story, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash politics. This is The Business with Aditya Chakraborty. Well, from the spending cuts to come here to the spending cuts already being made over in Europe. Markets have taken yet another battering over the past few days, except now they appear to be worrying less about spending restraint and more about where growth will come from. Last week, Spain took another downgrade on its creditworthiness, on worries that its economy is flatlining. Costas Lapifis, so let's start with you. I mean, what do you make of this sort of uh, weird thing that's going on between markets and sovereign states in Europe where they're, where they're each sort of trying to guess what the other one's up to? I think what's happening is that uh, people in financial markets have worked out that there's something profoundly wrong with the uh, Eurozone, with the um, entire structure of monetary union. And they will not be convinced by palliatives or by temporary measures taken by governments uh, across Europe, whether they are parts of the centre or parts of the periphery. I think that's what's happening. Why would that take 10 years or so of the euro for them finally to clock that there might be a structural problem? I think the reason... The reason why the structural problems of the euro have emerged with such uh, ferocity is, of course, the crisis of 2007-2009. It's the, the financial crisis, the global financial crisis that emerged in the United States and has spread across the world made the underlying problems of the euro appear with stark simplicity and everybody can see them now. And can I, if I could just say, this, the, underli- the key underlying problem as far as I'm concerned is not so much the fact that uh, there is one monetary policy and many fiscal policies, which uh, many people have said, this is a key problem. It is a key problem, but the fundamental problem is not that. I think the fundamental problem is, of course, that the euro system creates structural surpluses for some of the countries and structural deficits f- 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 for other countries. Do you and want to explain what that means in lay terms? What it means is that the countries of the centre of the eurozone, primarily Germany, but also other countries such as Holland and so on, 
um, can keep wages um, low, very low, exceptionally low, frozen effectively for many, many years. And as a result, they gain competitive advantages over countries of the periphery of the Eurozone, Greece, Spain, Portugal, Ireland to a certain extent, which have been less uh, successful at keeping wages down. Uh, and therefore, uh, these countries have lost competitiveness. And as they lose competitiveness within the um, euro area, what, what happens is that they develop deficits in, in trade and deficits in general uh, flows of services and so on. Uh, and these are matched by export of capital from the, cent from the main um, central European um, uh, countries here, uh, which send foreign direct investment and loans to, to peripheral countries. And therefore, you get this completely warped structure of the peripheral countries not being able to compete in goods markets and elsewhere and importing uh, capital from the central European so countries. So you're, you're saying that a German firm because it has all this extra cash, decides to invest, what, in Spain or Portugal or, or Greece. Is that right? I'm saying that German, the German productive structure makes system, systemic surpluses. These surpluses are then recycled by German banks and other financial institutions just to a large extent within the Eurozone, and they become lending uh, or they become foreign direct investment uh, to a large extent. In a sense... Uh, the Eurozone has become an enormous area of German domination. Europe has never been dominated by Germany economically in the way in which it is dominated at present. Okay, so perhaps one example of that might be that uh, we've seen a lot of uh, uh, German banks lending out to Spain, for instance, to create a huge property bubble there, and as a property bust in Spain. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? That, that's it. That's, what, that, that's one element of this. Um, German banks and French banks to a certain extent, but also Dutch banks, have been lending uh, very substantial amounts of money um, throughout this period, but also very uh, intensively since 2007, after the crisis burst out in the United States. And they've been lending this money uh, both for purposes of real estate and so on, but also buying uh, uh, the sovereign debt of the uh, peripheral uh, European countries, buying Greek, uh, bo Greek government bonds and so on. And they are extended uh, significantly uh, to peripheral countries at the moment. That is a core weakness now of the European financial system. Nils Prattley, let's bring you in. I mean, that was a pretty apocalyptic uh, view of the Eurozone there. Costas is basically saying there's not much that can be done to fix the Eurozone as is. Is that something that markets have seen as well yeah i think that i mean Gus's analysis i mean i I, th I think is 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 correct i think it's becoming uh, more accepted um I, i'd sort of point to warren buffett's remarks a couple of weeks ago at the berkshire hathaway meeting he said um uh i don't know how this how this movie ends and i don't know uh, and i don't like going to movies like that i i mean he is he's worried you know and you don't really get buffett sort of making remarks like that and it is very hard to see you know, if that analysis is correct, how do you get the German banks to behave differently? How do you get German consumers and German uh, investors to behave differently? Because that that seems to be, um, you know, a necessary condition for growth returning. And you know, growth seems to be, um, you know, the biggest palliative to this to this problem. I, I'm not sure how you do it. Costas, well, th th it's, it's good that we've got you on board because you and your colleagues at SOAS did a paper recently on what the scenarios for the, for the euro were. Just, just run us through them. Um, I suppose some people would accuse us that, well, did accuse us at the time, this was back in March, that we were, we were apocalyptic, but uh, unfortunately most of, much of what we said is coming true. Um, we identified basically three broad strategic uh, choices. The first is... 
um, austerity. What is actually being applied at the moment, and it has been applied for months, it's actually spreading across Europe, basically a policy of uh, suppressing real wages, cutting uh, public expenditure, imposing tightness across the Eurozone in the hope that this will um, restore fiscal um, fiscal balances and also would make the countries of the South more competitive because it will push their wages down. Uh, we thought that this kind of approach is actually... Um, probably the worst, uh, because uh, it will lead economies into recession and it will make uh, the problem possibly worse uh, in the medium term. In a sense, this is pre-Keynesian economics. This is the re-emergence of, of a kind of thinking about the economy that used to be very, very popular before Keynes wrote in the 1930s. You know, you're in the middle of a recession. What you do is you cut in order to make the economy presumably more healthy and it will emerge stronger. You liquidate labor, you liquidate land, you liquidate stocks, everything. This, yeah. ki this kind of thing. And I think it is very unlikely that positive uh, results will come out of it. Uh, needless to say, the social pain for labor and other uh, social layers will be enormous. The second option we identified was what we called the good euro option. And this is a kind of uh, idea that um, has made a lot of running within the left, much of the European left, uh, particularly the left of the South, but to a certain extent the left of Germany, for instance, within the Die Linke party, uh, where the notion is that uh, the European Union and the Eurozone are actually national integrations, which are good to preserve and desirable things, but what people, you know, you know, uh, left-wing people and organized labor should do would be to push these organizations in, in, in a direction, to push this integration in a direction that is uh, beneficial to the working person, to, uh, to working people. And it would do, that can happen by expanding the European budget, by providing um, wage support, by providing cover for unemployment, um, and so on. Our view was that, of course, Individually and partially, each of these measures are, are desirable. Who, who, who would argue against better wage protection and better labor protection across Europe and so on? But we think that it is highly unlikely that such a thing would uh, come to pass, both on account of politics. Germany, for one, is dead against any kind of this uh, idea. Well, Germany wouldn't want to give away its, its competitive advantage to Greece. Yes, I mean, that's, that's yes. what you're, you're effectively calling well, it. Well, that's, that's one thing. But also the German political structure, uh, more generally, is dead against any kind of uh, notion of this uh, um, type. And we also thought that if any policy of this type prevailed, the euro would become very weak anyway. So the role of the euro as global reserve currency would be weakened. So we thought this is unlikely. So what, what, what's left then? Well, what's left is exit. What is left is exit uh, from the eurozone, um, for, particularly for the smaller peripheral countries, which find themselves in a very, very difficult uh, spot. Um, exit, of course, can happen in different ways. Um, Exit can happen in ways that uh, leading Anglo-Saxon economists have already proposed, such as Charles Goodhart or Feldstein in the United States, who basically argued that Greece needs to exit in order to have um, devaluation of its currency and restart its exports and therefore give some a breath of fresh air to its economy. Um, obviously, devaluation could work in this way, but there is also a conservative way of doing that. We would argue for a progressive way of doing, uh, of undertaking this structure, this uh, policy, which would also restructure the economy more generally. Uh, we think that um, the way um, European 
peripheral European economies have moved in the last few years is not sustainable. This is a way that favors capital uh, against labor. We think that there is a need for a profound shift in the balance of economic and political forces against capital and in favor of labor. And this requires a certain set of measures, um, such as, for instance, I'll be very brief, I know taking a lot of time, but uh, debt default would be a key measure to start with because there's no way that the Greek economy can keep carrying 300 billion euros of public debt. Debt default would be one thing, and then bank nationalization would be another because the banks would themselves, of course, come under enormous pressure if there was a debt default and exit from the euro. And then a restructuring of the economy across the board with the adoption of industrial policy. Um, such a thing, such, such a Measure, such a package of measures might have a chance of putting the Greek economy on a growth path again. Okay, now here's a big question. You're just back from Athens. Um, to what extent is the issue of Greece leaving the Eurozone, to what extent is that now being discussed actively? Until the beginning of May, the idea of Greece leaving the Eurozone was entertained by um, well-isolated individuals. Mavericks. Mavericks, yes. It was thought uh, to be uh, something that um, some people might consider in the quiet of their study. Um, However, since the beginning of May, something has changed. The political uh, and social atmosphere uh, has changed uh, dramatically. And um, it is clear to me and to several others that the notion of default and uh, and exiting from the euro, from the eurozone, has, have now become legitimate subjects, legit, legitimate topics uh, of public uh, debate. This will become uh, stronger, uh, stronger in, the, in the weeks to come. Um, the reason why this has happened is, of course, that um, disappointment and disillusionment with the Eurozone, Euroscepticism, and disillusionment with the domestic political uh, system and the, all political parties in Greece is at record levels at the moment. People are completely disappointed with... Uh, what has happened with where the country is and what is on offer to put the country back on its feet. They're looking for new ideas and they're beginning to consider uh, such radical views too. Okay, now the the other thing that's remarkable about Greece in context of Britain is that you're already having or you're already seeing kind of spending cuts that lie ahead for, for the UK. What does it feel like to be undergoing the most massive spending cuts in in a, in, in decades? Give, give, give us kind of tale from, from the future, back to people in Britain. <laughs> uh, well, yes, I mean, what a, t- what a tale to, 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 to convey. Um, the, the, the first, the, the, what people, what you can see when you look at Greece right now is a, is a, is a state of shock, actually. Shock and awe. Uh, people are quite literally, they're finding it hard to believe that such measures could ever be introduced, that real wages could be cut by 20-25%, that that, um, pensions could be reduced by 20-25%. The impact, however, of these cuts um, has just started to be felt. At the moment, it's at the level of um, trying to understand it, trying to swallow it. You haven't, people haven't felt it in their wallets yet. They haven't, they haven't seen it in their pay packets yet. Where they've seen the, uh, the impact of the cuts more clearly is in certain key things of public consumption or of general consumption, such as oil, petrol. Petrol prices have gone through the roof, and people are finding it difficult to use their cars to do things which they've always been able to do, such as get, on, get in the car and go out. and Because the government know. used to subsidize oil prices. Not it? so much that. It's because the government has taxed petrol now oh, right. in order to make up the uh, to, to, to do something about the deficit so petrol is becoming incredibly expensive so people have been hit directly uh, in terms of their own 
personal lives, but obviously businesses have also been devastated by businesses that rely extensively on transport. They've been um, devastated by uh, this kind of uh, measure. So uh, taxes have also gone up, key taxes have gone up, and people are expecting um, uh, charges, you know, people are expecting to lose money in the coming months. Um, and the realization of how pronounced the impact will be has just begun to sink in. Uh, hasn't materialized yet, but it's just begun to sink in. And um, the reaction is, um, as I said, shock and awe and also uh, f- anger, uh, bubbling anger from, from, from below. Niels, last word to you. Uh, Costas there basically said that there were three options for the Eurozone. You could either have German austerity for all, mm. uh, you could have Germany bunging a load of money at the Greeks and the Portuguese and the Spanish, or Germany, uh, or rather Greece and Portugal, Italy and Spain could all leave the Eurozone. Which of those do you think markets are actively talking about, if any? Well, they're talking about them all, aren't they? The, um, but I think, I, I think the debate, as Costas indicates, is shifting towards the final one of those, that um, of people leaving uh, the Eurozone. I think the, you know, the £750 billion uh, package that was put together uh, the other week is, was clearly... Uh, uh, an attempt to to, um, uh, to to buy some time, rather expensively, mm-hmm. um, but to, to buy some time to sort of consider, you know, a more uh, lasting, a more fundamental reshaping, you know, if that's what's needed. And it's clear that the markets are saying that I think that's, that something of that order has got to be done. I mean, you know, you take a step back and there are some people in this club who shouldn't be in the club. I mean, I think and a mechanism has to be found to address that address that problem. And it was very interesting to hear because it described you know that the on the ground um, uh, picture in Greece because I mean, it does play to this notion that it's yeah this this crisis has a very sort of slow burn nature of it. You get a Fitch downgrade on a Friday, then something else happens, and you know it. You know, hearing what it's like on the streets in Athens, it, uh, it does remind us that you know this problem hasn't got to go is not gone away with the seven hundred and fifty billion uh, package the other week. Uh, it's not gone away. It's going to get worse. These things have to be addressed in the end. And, you know, it could get very nasty if the growth figures, say, over the summer or the early autumn start to disappoint. Then I think things do get quite nasty for uh, for the markets. I mean, at the moment, the growth figures, even in the US, seem to be good enough to keep alive the argument that growth might see us out of this or at least alleviate some of the problems. I think, you know, if you heap another little crisis on, like disappointing US figures or something nasty coming out of China, um, yeah, then we've got big problems. Okay, and if you want to follow this story, you can go to guardian.co.uk forward slash business. This is The Business from The Guardian. Let's just round up the podcast with a quick look at some of the other big stories around at the moment. Nils, there are two huge corporate stories running today. BP shares have gone down 20%. Tell us what that, what's going on there. Well, today they've gone down 14%. We're talking Tuesday lunchtime, but um, clearly in the context of the, uh, you know, since, since the, uh, uh, the oil leak in the Gulf of Mexico, they're down, you know, as you say, 20% plus. Um, you know, the, today it's been a bad holiday. So the markets in the, London were closed yesterday. Uh, so there's the first chance for the markets to react to the, to, to the news that um, uh, BP's latest attempt to stem the flow of oil failed uh, and that it's now looking at other things and that it's um, what looked like uh, a danger now becomes a sort of probability that the oil might be flowing until August or, you know, maybe not a probability, but, you know, the odds have, have certainly 
uh, increased. The um, well, the chances have increased. So 14%. And then once you sort of get into that, I mean, BP clearly has not been able to stem this. You get questions about how they've handled it, uh, questions of credibility of the management and questions ultimately about the long BP's ability to survive as an independent company, because I mean, you know, should it be paying a dividend in these circumstances? If it hasn't, if it's not going to pay a dividend, then you know the management will be out on their out on their ear pretty quickly. And you would have thought it would be, you know, it's conceivable to pay the portrait when it would be taken over by somebody, somebody else. Uh, I mean, have you I seen mean, really this, big, big? Have you seen this suggestion running in some of the US papers, uh, some of the posh US papers at that, saying that the BP should be partly should be emer- have a kind of emergency nationalisation by the US government. Yeah, I mean, you can you can sort of uh, yeah you can sort of see why that why why they would argue that, can't you? I mean, it's the oil washing up on their shores. Um, yeah, these are you know I think something sort of over the weekend with the failure of this latest attempt, you know, the the, the scale of the crisis for BP as a corporate entity has increased massively. I mean, it's still you have to say that the most likely outcome is that they they will eventually get get uh, get control of this leak and will have to pay an enormous bill, a bill that might be big enough, so big that they have to cut their dividend in half or something like that. But you you know BP still uh, continues. Um, so I mean. We're talking about sort of, you know, quite long shot um, uh, scenarios, but but you know they're becoming credible. They're becoming credible. This sort of national, you know, not necessarily nationalisation, but sort of BP being taken over as an emergency. Last time we had you on, we uh, uh, forced you to make a series of stock tip uh, predictions for us. Where, when should I be buying my BP shares? Well, my co-conspirator, Miss Larry Elliott, was, was was also with me on this one. I think um, I think the share price is rather higher then um, than it is today. And we were sort of talking, about, you know, how low can it go? Isn't yeah. it starting to look attractive? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, that, that, which is sort of illustrates the point that confidence has snapped. I mean, I think it, there is now you're getting this sort of feeling. If you're a fund manager, it's a bit embarrassing to have a bit of have a large holding in BP. So there's a bit of sort of panic setting in that maybe it's time to dump. So you know, I'm not getting into the game of sort of trying to trying to guess. Uh, but Neil, having like, been well, wrong, I wrong to once, all of these and then played them back to you at the end of the year. Yeah, that's why I'm not getting into the game. <laughs> okay, from one venerable British firm yeah. to another, Prudential. What's going on with this attempt to buy up this uh, Asian insurance arm of AIG? Yeah, we could say from an engineering accident to a financial engineering accident. I mean, Prue, Prue basically was trying to pay too much for this company. The shareholders sniffed it out. Prue's not been helped by the fact that markets have fallen in the meantime uh, and that there's uh, been events in Thailand, you know, one of the big, supposed growth markets for this business. Um, but basically, they misjudged, the, Prue misjudged the mood of its shareholders. It was too ambitious. It handled the whole, whole affair disastrously. Too many cock-ups along the way. Um, as I say, we're talking on Tuesday lunchtime. I would have thought that the chief executive TJ and TM is going to be toast fairly soon. When? By the end of the week, probably. That is a prediction I can take to the bank. Yeah. Okay, my thanks to Nils Prattley and Costas Lavavistas. Don't forget to add your voice to our debate at guardian.co.uk forward slash the business. This podcast was produced by Annie Duckworth. I'm Adit Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.